0: We are eight weeks into a series uh, through the Ten Commandments that I've entitled Unmasked. And today we are looking at one verse, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Five words You shall not commit adultery. Clear, simple, straightforward, unambiguous. You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. As I've said throughout this series, we often assume that the Ten Commandments are a ladder that we climb in order to get more of God's love, to get more of God's blessings, that the better we are at keeping the Ten Commandments, the better God will be to us. That's the assumption that we typically make. But as I've mentioned each week, the Ten Commandments are not a ladder that we climb to get more of God's love and more of God's blessings. They are an impassable wall that we crash into so that we will finally admit that we are desperate for God. That's what the Ten Commandments are intended to accomplish. They are meant to expose that there is no one righteous. They are meant to show us what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, that there is no one good but God. In other words, the whole goal, the mission of the Ten Commandments is to expose the fact that none of us are not in need of grace, that we all need grace. Now, given the fact that last week I called you all murderers and you still came back, I thought I'd try this week to call you all adulterers and see what happens. Um. Here's another one of those commandments, okay, like the one we looked at last week. You know, we looked at commandment one, two, three, four, five, and we thought, okay, we could probably come up with some sophisticated argumentation for how we've kept those or how we have broken those. But then we get to commandment number six and we go, okay, we finally arrived at a commandment that I've kept. I'm not guilty of murder. And we saw last week that um, that, that wasn't true. Um, And given the fact that this commandment is similar, that it in in some way, shape, or form allows us to conclude that we haven't done this. If we understand adultery in a very particular way, we haven't done this. It's another one of those commandments that make it seemingly easy for us to distinguish between us and them. He's an adulterer. She's an adulterer. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I haven't done what they've done. I'm not guilty at this point because I've never physically cheated on my spouse. He has, she has, I haven't. Um, But shrinking the reach of commandments like this so that its violations exclude us is the reason why so many of us aren't amazed by grace. Honestly, grace only amazes those who know they're guilty. Grace is only sweepingly amazing to those who know that they're guilty. Grace doesn't impress you if you think you're good. Grace only impresses you and makes you incredibly grateful if you know that you're bad. So when we conclude that we are not guilty of this commandment or any commandment. If our disposition in life is a disposition of someone who believes they're not guilty, it not only fuels self-righteousness and judgmentalism because we think we're better than that person, um, but it also sucks the life out of beautiful things like empathy and forgiveness toward those who have really messed up. Everywhere we look, people are calling out other people, everywhere, pointing out the sins of other people. Someone once told me that Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, where Jesus says, why do you pick out the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the log in your own? Uh, Someone once told me that those verses are the two most ignored verses in the Bible. Now, whether that's an overstatement or not, the point stands, okay, Um, we seem addicted to identifying and exposing the flaws of others. It's an addiction. It's like a drug. It makes us feel higher, if only for a moment. In fact, one of the most effective ways to avoid our own dark shadows is to hide behind the obvious faults of someone else, obviously. As long as my focus is where you are bad, I feel good. That's going on all over the place. And this type of moral snobbery exposes just how deluded we are about our own dire need for grace and for forgiveness. It is the summit of hypocrisy to spend our time confessing the sins of other people while never confessing our own. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. It's the apex of blindness to point out the flaws of other people while ignoring our own flaws. Wherever there is a sense of moral superiority and ethical innocence, there will always be a lack of grace. Always. There will always be a lack of forgiveness. Always. There will always be a lack of empathy. Always, because what makes people forgiving and what makes people gracious, what makes people non judgmental and empathetic, is a deep down realization of just how much forgiveness and grace they themselves need. That's what makes someone gracious. That's what makes someone forgiving. We all want to be around people who are gracious, who are empathetic, who are forgiving. Well, what makes people gracious and empathetic and forgiving is the fact that they know down deep just how much grace and forgiveness they themselves need. You know someone really understands God's grace and forgiveness when you confess your sins and secrets to them and they don't blink. That's when you know. Non-blinking friends are those who know that they themselves and no one else is the chief of sinners. Those are the kind of people who aren't shocked by your sin, who remain amazed by grace, people who know that they're guilty, people who know that they've screwed up, people who know what it feels like to be at the bottom. Those are the people, those are the ones that you run to when you've blown it. Those are the ones you're not afraid to go to when you've really screwed up and you're embarrassed. Empathy is born not out of thinking that you're good, but out of knowing that you're bad, that you're no better than anyone else. That's where empathy is born. Um, My wife, Stacy, made a very helpful distinction for me a number of years back she said, you know, before you and I met, I listened to your sermons and I read your books and I was familiar with your ministry. And your ministry was always very sympathetic to the sinner and to the sufferer, to the one who is really screwed up. She said, but now I listen to what you say and I read what you write. And um, it's not just sympathetic, but it's empathetic. And I pushed a little bit and asked her what she meant. And she essentially said this, sympathy is saying, I I hear what you're saying. Empathy is, I feel what you're feeling because I've been there. And it's typically those people who have crashed and burned who are very well acquainted with loss and guilt and shame and regret, who have bottomed out, crashed and burned, um, who are the most empathetic because they've been where you are. These are the people who know that they're guilty, that they haven't kept all of the rules and dotted all of the I's and crossed all of the T's. Empathy is born, like I said, not out of thinking that you're good, but out of knowing that you're no better than anyone else. Francis Spufford, who's a, uh, a philosopher, a philosophy teacher in England, wrote a book called Unapologetic back in 2013, I think. Excellent, excellent book. But he says this, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people and excluding the bad people for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Christianity can slip into being a cozy club or affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Why do we come through red doors every Sunday morning? Those doors are painted red for a reason, and the reason those doors are painted red is because they serve as a constant reminder every time we walk through them that we are here only because of what someone else has done for us, that we gain access to God through the shed blood of Jesus for you, for me. That's how we gain access to God. In other words, we come knowing that we, in and of ourselves, are guilty. I told someone not long ago that our church probably has more in common with a recovery group than a typical church. Because just like it's true in any, you go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting or whatever, if you go to an AA meeting, you're, you know, you have to begin by saying, hi, my name's Tully, and I'm an alcoholic. You start out admitting that you're weak. Well, the goal here, I think, and should be in every church, is that we come in and we say, Hi, my name is Tully, and I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's why we gather. We gather to be reminded that we are without hope in this world and the next, apart from what Jesus has done on our behalf. Um, Well, last week, I said that in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus insists that anger and murder are equally liable to judgment. He made that very clear. He showed there that in God's economy, there is an equality between intention and action, thought and deed. There is a difference between being angry with somebody, being bitter towards somebody, being unforgiving towards somebody, being resentful towards somebody and murdering them. Okay, there is a difference In terms of the consequence, in the eyes of the state, you can be angry with someone and not go to prison. If you kill them, you will. But before God, both are equally liable to judgment, Jesus says. Well, a few verses down, Matthew chapter 5, in fact, I'm going to go there right now. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, uh, he addresses adultery in, in the same way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, uh, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so Jesus in this section takes it up a notch He goes even deeper. Not only are thought and deed equally liable to judgment, they're actually the same thing. Lust is adultery, okay, according to what Jesus says here. Um, A number of years ago, I had a friend tell me a story about a time he went to have dinner at a friend's house, and while the friend was in the kitchen fixing dinner, uh, this friend of mine was sitting in the living room and happened to notice on the coffee table a book with the title, How to Overcome Lust. And so my buddy, who was apparently keenly interested in the subject, picked it up to see what it was going to say i so, uh, uh, You know, I was struck by curiosity, and so he picked up the book to see what it said, and he told me that there was this one section, okay, it's so funny, there was this one section in which the author was describing physiologically how certain things are triggered in certain ways, and in the absence of those triggers, you won't suffer some of the same consequences. So, for instance, he said the illustration the writer used was, if you're driving down the road and there is a scantily clad female jogger that you see out of the corner of your eye running down the sidewalk, if you don't look directly at her, certain things physiologically in your brain will not be triggered, therefore you won't lust. But if you look directly at her, those same triggers will be triggered and you will lust. Okay, so my buddy started chuckle to himself, closed the book, put it down, and he looked at me and he said, you know what I discovered in that moment? Um, He said, I realized in that moment that I don't need eyes to lust. You could put me on a deserted island all by myself. And because I carry my heart with me, I will lust. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Okay. Well, if lust is adultery, then I don't care who you are. Before God, we're all adulterers. Okay. If that's if if what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 27 and 28 is true, then we're all adulterers. This is why Martin Luther said that the law forces a person to abandon the idea that he has the strength to fulfill it. Okay. I mean, anybody who at this point can read that commandment and think to themselves, I'm not guilty of this, is deluded, okay? Um, But there is an even deeper and more subtle way that we are all guilty of breaking this commandment. I preached on this commandment seven years ago. And so last week, I went back and looked at my notes from that sermon. And this is what it said. I'm going to read you exactly what I wrote. Yesterday morning, I grabbed my Bible from my bedside table to prepare for today, and it literally, literally fell open to the book of Hosea. Okay, now ladies, if you were with my wife on Wednesday night, you heard a little bit about Hosea. Um, Well, okay, let me... What what does that have to do with anything? What does the book of Hosea have to do with this commandment? Well, um, if I can find Hosea, I'm going to read you a few verses. Anyone know where Hosea is? It's in the Old Testament. I know that much. It's after Daniel, I think. Yes, it is after Daniel. Um, Hosea chapter 1. Let me me read Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And then I'm going to read Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Just to familiarize you with the story of Hosea, okay? Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, Hosea was a prophet that God set apart to speak to God's people. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, now, Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. (laughs) I have no idea what that even means. Maybe that's an indication of why I hate raisins, but I'm here to say, as far as I know, there's nothing inherently wrong with cakes of raisins, but apparently back then there were. Um, So verse two, so I bought her, For 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecheth of barley. Now, what does all this have to do with the seventh commandment? Okay. This crazy, weird, Old Testament story of Hosea and his prostitute wife, Gomer. What does that have to do with anything? The whole point of God telling Hosea to marry Gomer, the woman of whoredom is to show that even though God's people are continually unfaithful, he will remain faithful time and time and time again, okay? So in an article that Stacy wrote a few years ago about this story, she said this, as the story progresses, Gomer repeatedly cheats on her husband, abandoning her marriage vows over and over. On more than one occasion, Hosea goes and finds her in bed with another paying customer and lovingly brings her home. Gomer remains unfaithful as long as they both shall live. Now, it sounds strange to me that God would tell this holy man, this prophet, to go marry a prostitute in order to make a statement to his people. That's precisely what he did. This is the message, Hosea, that I want you to deliver to my people. Don't say a word. Don't preach a sermon. Go marry a whore. She's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to cheat on you. And you will remain faithful to her. And when you discover that she's in bed with another paying customer, you go buy her back. That's what I want you to do. Why would he ask her to do that? Because that is how far God goes to rescue unfaithful you and me. In other words, in that story, we are supposed to be uh, identifying with Gomer. We are the Gomers, God is Hosea. We are. We are all the gomers. I mean, this commandment, in other words, so so go back to seventh commandment, this commandment is intended to expose our faithlessness. This commandment is intended to expose that we are all gomers. We are all adulterers. We are all wives of whoredom, all of us. God has faithfully wedded himself to us and we just can't stop sleeping around. Spiritually. Every time we sin, in thought, word, and deed, we are cheating on God. Every time. Our refusal to believe that God has already given us everything we need and long for causes us to look for love in all the wrong places. Unbelief, in other words, is the force that gives birth to all of our unfaithfulness. Our failure to believe that everything we need and everything we long for are already ours, free of charge because of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus, our failure to believe that causes us to go out and look for love in all the wrong places, to look under every rock and behind every tree for love and acceptance for approval and meaning and significance and value and all of those things. Martin Luther said that the sin beneath all sins is the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of Jesus and that we must take matters into our own hands. It's a great line. The sin underneath all sins is the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of Jesus and that we must take matters into our own hands. In other words, every attempt to save ourselves equals infidelity to God every attempt so for instance I'll give you an example it's not adulterous to want love it's adulterous to believe that finding love will save you okay it's not adulterous to pursue your dreams it's adulterous to believe that the fulfillment of your dreams will save you it's not adulterous to want what's best for your kids that's a good thing it is adulterous to believe that your kids turning out a certain way will save you. So we all hunger for thirst. I mean, we all hunger and thirst for love and for approval. And in and of themselves, those things are not bad. In fact, we were created to experience those things. We are created to experience love and approval and affirmation. It's when we seek to satisfy our hunger and thirst for love and approval in anything or anyone smaller than God that our adulterous ways are exposed. Adultery and idolatry are very closely linked. So if you haven't had an affair in the way that we typically think about it, you're not off the hook, okay? According to Jesus, we're all on the hook as much as someone who has. The law, as I've said, levels the playing field and eliminates the us versus them distinction. No longer can we say, he's a murderer, I'm not. She's an adulterer, I'm not. The Ten Commandments eliminate the us-them distinction. In the Bible, there is no distinction between us and them. There's a distinction between us and him, but not us and them, the law eliminates that. Well, that's, that's the bad news, okay? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the good news sounds so much sweeter when it's up against the backdrop of bad news. So much sweeter. So here's the good news. As the story of Hosea and Gomer shows, God's love and acceptance of us is not dependent on our faithfulness, but Jesus' faithfulness for us, okay? Okay. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. I mean, how beautiful is that? God's love for you, his work in your life, God's commitment to you, God's acceptance and approval of you is in no way dependent on you. It is dependent entirely and exclusively on what Jesus has done for you. Full stop. Full stop. Yeah, but there are no yeah, buts. Full stop. Everywhere we are faithless, Jesus was faithful. Everywhere. Okay. Think back to his temptation in the wilderness after his baptism. He was baptized by John the Baptist, and then it says, the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, Jesus, everywhere we were faithless or we are faithless, Jesus was faithful. Think about this. When he was tempted in the wilderness to worship something smaller than his father, he resisted. When he was offered all the power in the world, if he would just abandon his father, he refused. When the devil said, I know you're starving, you haven't eaten in a long time, you have the power, just turn these stones into bread. He repudiated the idea of taking his physical needs into his own hands and to not trust his father to meet those needs. Every place and everywhere we are unfaithful, where we are faithless, Jesus was faithful. Ultimately, he was faithful to his father's will by living the life we couldn't live and dying the death we should have died. So that as the book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. He was faithful at every place where we are faithless. And that Faithfulness of Jesus is now given to us. So that faithfulness is not just Jesus' record. Because it is his record, his record, and he gave it to us, it is now our record too. Because this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is true of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant is true of us. I don't know about you, and if you've said this, I've said it, so I'm just as guilty. I can't stand it when I'm at a funeral, when I've done a funeral, and I'm trying to speak well of the person who died, or I hear the minister try to speak well of the person who died, um, and somewhere in their eulogy they say, you know, he is now, he arrived in heaven and has now heard, well done, good and faithful servant, as if he earned it. Listen, okay, the only reason you and I are going to hear well done, good and faithful servant is because we carry with us the cloak of Christ's righteousness, period. Because of what Jesus has done, we will hear those words. We won't hear those words because of what we have done. We will hear those words because of what he has done for us. So because... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is true of Jesus. We will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, um, I want to conclude with a story that I have told before. um, But I want to begin by saying I'm not oblivious to the fact that there are those who are hearing me or who will hear or who will hear this message at some point who, like me, have committed physical adultery. I'm wide open, uncomfortably wide open about my own story, okay? I, uh, my first marriage ended in divorce uh, in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife. Uh, so when I originally preached this sermon, I thought I was, I mean, I had to dig to find out that I was guilty, but on the surface, I felt like, you know, okay, I haven't done this one, okay? Well, I, now I have in the most tangible ways. Okay, so preaching it this time around is a little bit different. Uh, and I am not oblivious to the amount of guilt and shame and regret and loss that typically accompany breaking up a family because of unfaithfulness and infidelity. Um, and every time that I think about, uh, and I, I've said this before, I will probably live knowing that I... Uh, selfishly hurt people that I love very, very much, I will probably live for the rest of my life, not because I want to, but I will probably live for the rest of my life with a low degree of sadness. Always. I mean, I think about it all the time. I think about my three children and how much they mean to me and how close we are and how much I love them. And I will never, ever, ever, ever forget the looks on their faces when I told them what I had done. Ever. Ever. It was almost six years ago, and I could tell you like it happened five minutes ago. I could tell you um, what they said, the look on their face. They were all older. Uh, So I know that pain. I know it. I know the depression that accompanies something like this. I know the regret and the pain and the shame that accompanies things like this, The, the pain that accompanies hurting those that you love. I get it. Um, and as I was thinking about that yesterday, it reminded me of this story that some of you have heard me tell, uh, but it was something I needed to be reminded of. And while it is something that we all need to be reminded of because we are all adulterers. I want those who are hearing what I'm saying right now, who have actually committed physical adultery where you've cheated on your spouse, or you've been on the receiving end of someone who has cheated on you. I want you to hear this story. Uh, It's a story that was told to me a number of years ago by an old friend of mine named Rod Rosenblatt, uh, who was for a long time uh, a theology professor uh, in Southern California. Um, He's Rod's in his late 70s now. We were in Chicago standing at the top of an escalator getting ready to go down, and as as we were walking side by side... He started to tell me this story, and as I was moving forward to get on the escalator, he stopped me, turned turned to me, faced me, put his hands on my shoulder, blocking the way for other people to get on the escalator, uh, and he told me this story. Uh, It's a story about um, a woman who went to go see her pastor. Pastor, you know that I had an abortion a number of years ago. Yes, the pastor replied. Well, I need to talk to you about the man that I've recently married. Okay, said the pastor. Well, we met a while back and started dating, and I thought, I need to tell him about the abortion, but I just couldn't. Then things got more serious between us, and I thought, I need to tell him about the abortion, but I just couldn't. A while later, we got engaged, and I thought, I need to tell him about the abortion but I just couldn't. Then we got married and I thought, I really, really need to tell him about the abortion, but I just couldn't. So I needed to talk to someone, pastor, and you're it. The pastor said, well, you know we have a service for this. Let's, Let's go through that together. So they did a service where she would confess her sin and he would assure her of God's forgiveness. And when they were finished, she said to him, Thank you, Pastor. Now I think I have the courage to tell my new husband about my abortion. And the pastor replied to her, What abortion? Gone. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. The sins we cannot forget, God does not remember. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far God casts our sin away from us because of what Jesus has done. So while it's unrealistic to assume that in this world and in this life we will We as guilty people will never suffer from the weight of guilt and shame again, totally unrealistic. But it's when we do feel the heaviness of guilt and shame for things we have done or failed to do that we are reminded over and over and over again by God on high that it is finished. That you now wear the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You are locked inside a straitjacket of righteousness so that nothing you do or fail to do will ever tempt God to leave you or forsake you because God relates to you based not on what you do or fail to do, but exclusively on what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray together.